When I was four years old, I believe that to be my first memory of my first memorable paranormal experience. Even though at the time I didn't know it was paranormal, it was just something I experienced. I remember sitting on a bed at my auntie's new place in um, Klamath Falls, Oregon. And I just remember seeing out of the corner of my eye up towards the ceiling, just the top half of an old woman. And I remember she just kept talking like really bad to me and my cousin and saying that we're bad people and we stole her money and we're a bunch of thieves and liars and all these things. And being a little girl, right, you don't really know what to do. In my mind, it was just some older lady being mean to me. So I remember I jumped off the bed, you know, kind of mad. And I went and I ran and grabbed my grandpa and I brought him in and I said, this lady's being mean to us in here. And credit to my grandpa for not saying, oh, it's your imagination or anything. He just looked around the room. My grandpa's this big, towering, six-foot-three man, right? And he just looked, and he asked me where I saw her. And he just said, you know what? You guys aren't bad people. You're just little girls. Just don't pay any attention to her. Just ignore her. So I said, okay. And my cousin kept looking over my shoulder. I don't know if she saw it also or if she just was looking to see what I saw. And once again, the old lady started saying that we're bad people and we stole her money and give it back and all these things. And I was just like, lady, we're just little girls. <laughs> just repeated what my grandpa said. And then I don't remember what happened after that. I mean, because it wasn't an odd occurrence. It was just a normal occurrence for me. But it's very interesting because it wasn't until I'd say three to five years ago, as an adult woman now, I was telling my mom, because we, we talk about paranormal a lot, she has abilities as well. And just to try to understand it, we, we always it always comes up in conversation. So she was asking, well, what is the first thing you remember? So I told her about this story, and her jaw dropped when I told her, this lady was saying that we stole from her and we had her money and all of this. Her jaw dropped because... I guess the reason that we were there in the first place, traveling with our grandparents, was to move my aunt and her family into this new house. And her husband at the time, when they were moving in, somehow kicked up, I don't know if it was a floorboard, but somehow stashed in a coffee can, they found money. It was $500 and against all of the adults at the time, better judgment, he went ahead and kept it. So seeing now you know that's what the old lady was talking about her money was stolen it wasn't by us little girls you know we weren't aware of it but yeah she was upset i didn't know anything about ghosts or spirits or anything at the time you know you're just growing up you're just little your mind's more open and she was physically there as far as my senses were concerned you know and when you're little you don't know Okay, well, I'm going to talk myself out of what I just saw. You just experienced the world. And I had no sense of, oh, that's not normal, or we don't talk about that, or people don't experience those types of things. So it was just reality. My reality might be different than somebody else's because everybody's senses are different. But that is what was there. I'm Jim Perry. 
This is Euphemet, a show about the unknown and our relationship to it. This time, a girl leaves her family behind for the first time to follow her dreams and find something else. Take up that space. A nightmare. Next on Euphemet. I talked with Caitlin on a cold January while the world was still upside down. The wind whistled through her windows such as it had all through the Carson Valley that day. Somewhere in that northern part of Nevada where snow-capped Sierras hide Lake Tahoe. Here, the sundown siren blares every night, an artifact of the bad old days when its use was to alert the Washoe people to get the hell out of Germantown. Caitlin belongs to the Washoe tribe and the Northern Paiute. She's also a spiritual practitioner and medium who specializes in spirit communication for people who come looking for help, an inherited skill set that at one time she ran away from and right in to something else. Six generations that I knew in my lifetime of women in my family have some sort of mediumship um, I guess they would call them empathic and other abilities. Some people tap into it more than others. I'm the first one in about three generations who's really accepted this calling, if you want to call it that. There's so much power in words and definitions. And what our family possesses is ancient, you know, for all we know. Like I said, six generations, just that I knew the women that I knew in my lifetime that helped cultivate this. But there is no word for it in Western society or Western um, influence that would sum it up. So when I was 19, I ended up going to college in Hawaii just by chance. I didn't plan on going to college, but I went there as a high school graduation present and I had to stay. So I came back and I told my parents, I will go to college if you let me go to Hawaii. And I was gone within two weeks. Never been away from home in my life. Small town girl, you know, very close with my family. So just being over there by myself, not knowing anybody, didn't have a place to live yet. I was just staying with a friend of the family. Started school and because I think I was afraid of my abilities still at that time because I didn't really understand and things that would happen spontaneously would just be startling and I would automatically think it's negative. Now I know better, you know. I consciously or subconsciously suppressed all of my abilities because I was just trying to focus on okay well what does society say that I'm supposed to do I'm supposed to go to college I'm supposed to get this business degree and be successful make lots of money you know so I was trying to buckle down just shield everything out that backfired <laughs> to say the least within my first year or year and a half maybe of college I actually picked up a spiritual attachment.
when it first started, I had no idea. I had never experienced anything to that magnitude before. And it came on so gradually. It was like, it was just slowly creeping in. I remember it started off with physical symptoms, mostly fatigue, then emotional symptoms like depression, loss of motivation. And I couldn't understand where it was coming from because at that time I was a over the top, probably bubbly person. So for this change to go over to happen overnight, I didn't know what was wrong, but I knew something was wrong. It came to the point where the fatigue was getting so bad in between classes. If I would have a break for like two hours, I would go to the ladies room. It wasn't a very busy bathroom, but they had a couch in there and I didn't care who walked by, you know, or who was in there or what was happening in there. And I would take a nap on that couch. I would wake up and it would just feel like, I don't know. I would just feel the presence of some, somebody in there with me. I was, I don't know. I was probably sleeping in the bathroom for a month at that point. And then I started having nightmares. That was the next step. Well, the nightmares were just that. They were just nightmares for about the first two or three weeks, I would say. Then one night, um, the nightmare turned very real. This particular nightmare, it was just a man. I remember he was a decent looking man wearing a pinstriped suit and a top hat. And he just appeared in my bedroom in this dream and I just remember knowing that he was trying to bargain with me. And at the time, my grandfather was very sick um, with dementia. And my cousin was very sick with his illness. And we're, I knew I was very close with them and far away from home. So I remember saying no to all of its bargaining. I can do this for you. I can do that for you. I was like, no, just something felt very... I don't know what the word would be to describe it. Just like perverse about his whole, the way he was trying to trick me. And, you know, I knew that there was something amiss. And as soon as I really stood my ground, I said, no, I'm not going to do this. You know, he in that dream turned into my grandfather and started bargaining with me again. And he was saying things like, granddaughter, why won't you help me? I'm so scared, you know, I'm crying and things like that because the man in the dream had been telling me, I can make this all go away, I can make them better. And I knew that's not reality. But in its last ditch effort to get me to agree to whatever he wanted me to agree to was turning into my grandfather and using that against me. But knowing my grandfather and how strong he was and how much he loved me, I was like, no, he would never want me to do this. After I refused that, his last ditch effort, we got in a physical altercation. And I remember being tossed around my bedroom and fighting. And I remember as it was happening, I was like, okay, you need to know if this is something going on with your mind or if this is real. Like, you need some kind of proof of something for yourself. So I remember he threw me into the dresser and I had like a thing of body oil or whatever on the dresser. So when I saw that, I was like, okay, knock that on the floor so you can remember like when you come to, when you wake up, that it's there. 
and, you know, threw me in the corner of the room and I grabbed a shoe and tossed it to the other side. Just things like that that were silly in the moment, but I needed to prove to myself. And I woke up. It felt like I had just landed on my back on my bed. You know how, like, you fall and you kind of flail? I sat up and I was like, oh my gosh, my fight or flight response was crazy. And I was sore all over like I had been in a fight. And so I was like, okay, look. So I looked to everywhere that I had marked within that so-called dream and everything that I had done to live, leave a little breadcrumb trail for myself was there. So the school I went to in Hawaii was a private Catholic university. And I'm not Catholic. I actually just transferred there because I was hoping to play softball. And they had a smaller team that I could walk on. So I never really paid too much attention to it. But I found out later that that bathroom that I used to sleep in, that whole floor of that whole building, supposedly supposed to have been um, the morgue. I heard, I don't know if it's true, like I said, I never really looked into it. it, used to be an old army hospital. So that might have had something to do with it. I might have picked something up there that was just attracted to me because it knew I had abilities. And you know, they, you stand out to things like that. During the time I was going through, it was very early on in the attachment, there was a rumor that a classmate of mine that was kind of a timid kind of guy. You know, I, I've always had the heart thing for the underdog or the person that nobody really pays too much attention to. So I noticed right away that he was not attending class and things like that. So we, I remember asking the professor, like, so where's so-and-so? And she's like, we're not allowed to talk about that. But then it started going around. Like, people just whisper, like, yeah, they had to do an exorcism on him and all this stuff, and now he moved back to wherever he's from. In my family and my culture, when we smudge, we burn cedar or sage. And I always keep it right next to my bed. So that was my next plan. I was like, okay, I need to burn some sage or cedar. So I started searching for it, and it wasn't where I normally kept it, right next to my bed. But something just kept telling me, just keep looking for it. Like, whatever you do, do not stop until you find it. I eventually found it underneath my bed, stuffed inside of a shoe. So at that point, I was like, okay, you want to play like that, right? So I started burning the cedar and sage mixture, and I was walking around my apartment. And there was nothing. I didn't feel anything around. And then all of a sudden, I just got this sickening fear in the pit of my stomach, like I'd never felt before. And I just heard something audibly within my apartment laughing. And I turned around and standing right in front of my door, there was this black shadow standing there. And it was just laughing at me like, you're no threat to me kind of thing. Like what you're doing is not gonna help you any. So I'm standing there with the sage burning in my hand, which has always empowered me and made me feel powerful spiritually and protected me all these years you know was nothing for this thing 
and I remember just running straight towards me and jumping over my head. We were on the second floor, so we had a lanai window that we always kept open. It jumped right out. And at that moment, that's when I knew, okay, this is, this is not depression. This is not lethargy. This is something bigger. And then once I was aware of it, then things really got bad. <laughs> It makes you question every part of yourself, and that is by design of these things. It's their goal to isolate you. During that time, I withdrew completely from my friends and family, and it was very strange because I knew at the time, I didn't recognize it for what it was at the time, but my friends would ask me, Oh, we're going to go do this fun thing. Do you want to come with us? Come on. Like they were trying to get me out of the house because they could see that I was struggling. And I remember everything inside of me wanting to say, yes, I want to go with you guys. I want to have a good time or I just want to be by you guys. But something would always influence me or force me or somehow I would say no every time to the point where they just eventually stopped asking. So that was the onset of the oppression side of things. It was just an ugly feeling of you're fighting for your life or you're fighting for your soul every night. And it got to the point where I started going to sleep specialists. They couldn't find anything wrong, but they told me if you don't start sleeping because they didn't know what was going on. All they knew is that I was not hitting REM sleep. So if you don't find some way to sleep, you're going to die. In the beginning, I kept it a complete secret because, like I said, it makes you question your sanity. It makes you question your beliefs. It makes you question your family because, like I said, even with my friends trying to reach out to me, something was keeping me from reaching out to them. And it was the same, if not even more intense, when it came to my family, it's like, you can't say that. You know, these thoughts that weren't my own would come in and be like, you can't say that to them. They're going to think you're crazy, you know, or you're just going to worry them or they're going to lock you up. You know, all of these things every time you want to. And I knew like my family was open and aware of spiritual things or paranormal things, but I had never heard of anybody going through this type of thing, you know, that we knew about. So it's just like, okay, maybe I can handle this on my own. It was so apparent to all everybody looking from the outside in that there was something terribly wrong. My appearance changed. I gained like 100 pounds in a year. I went from this really bubbly person to somebody who was just totally reclusive and pessimistic and negative and all of this stuff that I I used to break down and I'd tell my mom I don't know how to explain this because she'd be like what's wrong with you what happened you know thinking something really happened to me that changed all of this overnight physically or something I said I don't know how to explain it mom I said this isn't me 
everything that was going on and that was happening and things I would do or the way I was experiencing life, I felt the separation between me and whatever this thing was. And it wasn't me. So because I wanted to try to handle things early on on my own, I didn't have the skill set at the time. I had the abilities, but I hadn't quite yet tapped into it. I didn't know how, and I couldn't get over the fear. And that's what they feed off of, right? And they're strengthened by that. But because these occurrences were happening so regularly, I just started doing little things and it was really just trial and error and desperation and being in survival mode that I learned all these little tips and tricks that you know would either weaken the hold they had on me the grasp momentarily or for a while until I could get to the next thing or it would empower me somehow and all of these little tips and tricks over time you know I started to see okay This thing isn't what it appears to be. It's a facade of all my deepest fears. I've been giving it all the ammo it needs in the form of rumination about my fears or just giving into that fear. Okay, one of the funnest and probably one of the most effective tools that I learned over that time was how to use humor to not only empower myself, but to kind of kind of make a joke of the situation, you know, because fear, anxiety, and excitement and laughter are very closely related within your body. So the reason the way I stumbled upon this was I have a friend that plays music in Waikiki, and this thing used to come to me like clockwork at night and it would just stand in my bathroom in the doorway and just stand there and bully me and intimidate me basically all night to keep me from sleeping it was like a form of torture right but because I knew he would be awake I would text him and I would just be like hey and he kind of knew what was going on we were close enough to where he knew I was struggling with something that he didn't really understand I don't know if he even believed it It doesn't matter if he did, though, because he helped me. So one night, I remember just being so afraid and trying to talk myself out of texting him because, oh, he's going to think you're crazy, all those thoughts. But I was like, you know what? He's my friend. I don't care. (laughs) I'm going to reach out. So I just said, hey, I'm scared, you know, kind of thing. It's around. And so, like, him being a musician and he's kind of a jokester anyway, he just goes, I'm your boogeyman. That's what I am. So, like... That made me chuckle a little bit. And for a second, that brought me out of that fear, that deep fear that I was in. And I was like, yeah, whatever, you know, laughed it off. And But I felt better and I, I was aware that I felt better in that moment. So from that point on, when it would show up, I wouldn't be like, oh my gosh, it's here and just lay there in fear, you know, and clutch my pearls all night. I would sing, I'm your boogeyman. And then I started talking to it because it's like, what do you want? You know, once I was able to release myself from that fear, it's like, what is your purpose here? Are we, you know, I want to know why you're here. You know, how do I get rid of you or whatever? So from that point, 
That's when I stumbled upon automatic writing. It never really described itself. Um, I'm even looking back now, it's still like, I don't know how to classify it, but it was a very negative or its facade was to be a very negative entity. And by the time I started talking to it, it was very strange, almost like possessive of me or like obsessed. And it would say things like, oh, um, your friends don't care about you. I care about you kind of thing. Like it reminded me. I've never been in an abusive relationship, but the things that it would say or, you know, the thoughts that would come from it were very similar to somebody just trying to keep you to themselves. At that point, I knew, okay, this can't go on any longer. I can't take another three years to figure out this thing's weaknesses. <laughs> you know, I'm in physical danger at this point. It's not spiritual anymore. So I picked a time when I knew that my parents would be out of the house and I basically just challenged it to a battle of the death. I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. I didn't know if I was going to die, if I was going to be possessed. I just knew that somebody was coming out on top. Uh, even thinking about it now, like I can't even explain that level of fear. And this night, I remember, I was afraid before I went to bed because I knew, okay, this is it. Went to bed like I normally do, laid down on that mattress I was telling you about. Soon as my back hit the mattress, that paralyzation, the paralyzing that it normally did happened. And I could see it standing at the foot of the bed, just out of the light, standing in the shadow. And I just said, hey, effer. <laughs> It's you or me. Like, I was at my wit's end. I didn't care at that point what the outcome it was. It just needed to stop. And I'm thinking, okay, it's going to think I'm tough. And it's, you know, I'm being as tough as I can be. It reached down, like, not even batting an eye if it had eyes. And grabbed me by the ankle. And because I was on the air mattress and our floor is linoleum, it started dragging the whole mattress with me on it towards the shadow that it was standing in. So, like, when I say I can't even explain that level of fear, I just remember it feels like your whole, like, essence leaves your body. I know what people mean when they say my blood ran cold, you know, or whatever, when they get scared, because mine did. It feels like you up and vacate your body. So I yanked my foot away, and I jumped up, and we have a hallway. It's not a long hallway. It's a standard hallway. When I jumped up, I didn't have control over my body like I had expected, how you would expect when you get up, you know, try to take off running, especially when your fight or flight's kicked in to that extent. But my, my motions were very robotic, and I felt like I was barely moving, and I just kept fighting it, and I was like barely crawling down the hall. Then when I got halfway, it released, and I was able to run full speed. And I was standing by the door and I was like, okay, I'm the one who called it out. My goal is for this to end somehow. So you need to stand your ground, stay and fight, do whatever you need to do. And then I heard it audibly with my physical ears laughing from the back bedroom. And as tough as I thought I was going to be, I was like, 
hell no, I'm out. <laughs> I grabbed the phone and I just, like I said, I called my sister, said, I'm coming over, start burning sage, I'll explain things when I get there. And But was very what was very strange about it, because I was so afraid, and like I said, this thing has been my nemesis all these years. When I stepped outside, like just the threshold of my house onto the front porch, I toppled over and just got very emotional. The depth of grief and despair and like loneliness that I felt in that moment, I can't put it into words and I can't really even conceive it by our human measure. And I knew in that moment that that was not me at all. That's what this thing must feel all of the time. That's why it's so desperate to feel something else. And at that moment, as afraid as I was of it, and as much as I wanted it gone, I felt compassion for it. And I pitied it. Like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine anything existing in that state of being. After that, I drove to my sister's. When I got about halfway there, I looked in the mirror of our truck and there was a shadow <laughs> sitting in the back seat. I just started saying every cuss word I knew, right? Because that's what my grandpa always taught me. Stand your ground and be tough, right? And so I just said what most people would probably say. I said, get the F out of my car. As soon as I said that, I saw it topple out the side, like in this weird, dark ball of energy or whatever. And like I was saying earlier, they play off of your fears and they thrive off of that. Where my sister lives, there's a lot of stray dogs that are always around. So my next fear was, I better slow down because I was speeding, of course, scared out of my mind. Because I'm going to hit a dog, you know. As soon as that thought crossed my mind, there was a dog sitting in my path. So I locked up the brakes, came to a stop, and I was like, oh my gosh. I felt bad, like I almost hit this dog. But then I started staring at the dog and its features were slowly changing it just looked like a medium-sized black dog pointy ears but its nose the more I looked it looks more like a like a rat's nose and kind of droopy towards the end and that's when I realized this isn't this isn't a dog and as soon as I made that association in my mind its eyes just glowed red just for a second and I floored it straight over the top. That's how sure I was that there was no dog there. And sure enough, when I looked in the mirror, there was nothing there. It was just another way for it to try to trip me up on my way to get help. My grandpa, he claims he doesn't have any abilities, but I think he does. But my great-great-auntie was probably the strongest in her abilities that we knew of growing up. And she practiced, and people knew that she had these abilities, and they would come to her for help or healing, you know, whatever it may have been. So she served a big purpose in our tribe. So she's the one who taught my grandfather, who was actually her in-law, how to handle these matters knowing that we as young kids and things would have these types of experiences. So he used her techniques and teachings that she had passed down. 
So he was always the place we went when we were scared of anything that happened or bad that came to us. So when I got there, he was already ready. He has like a little, it's a pelt. I think it's a rabbit fur pelt that he keeps his spiritual tools in for this type of thing. So he has an eagle feather, the cedar that I said we burn, and always a glass of water. And then he sat me down in a chair in their dining room and he started praying over me. And he just put his hand on top of my head and was holding it really strong, really tight. And he just started praying in our native language. My grandpa is one of the last speakers of the Washoe language. So he started praying and telling whatever's there, like, you can't stay here. We're stronger than you. You messed up by messing with my granddaughter, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and he just kept doing it. I remember the rhythm of the eagle feather as he was tapping it on my head and the prayer he was saying with the water and I could feel the water coming off that eagle feather. Just praying and I could feel from the tips of my toes just inching upward as he kept doing the prayer and the rhythm, the rhythmic padding of the eagle feather. I could feel some physical weight coming up my body. And when it got to the top of my head between like my heart and the top of my head I was overcome with that same feeling of grief and despair and all of the same things that I felt when I was on my front porch toppled over you know with grief so I knew that was that thing's last ditch effort you know like this is what I feel feel bad for me keep me around kind of thing and I remember like I could feel that and I I started crying and I was breaking down and I remember my grandpa just kept going but he was looking like his face was kind of fear too like he'd never seen anything like that and I remember looking across the room and my brother-in-law was sitting there who's non-native but he believes in our um our ways and he was just like he'd never seen me like that either he's known me since I was a little girl and I've always been kind of rough and tough around the edges <laughs> you know so to see me in that weakened state and just not caring who's around and just letting go, you just don't know how to comprehend that when you're seeing it. And I felt like, almost like a pop, like pop out right out the top of my head, a physical weight. So I felt whatever this was, the oppression, or if that thing was, you know, partially residing within me, you know, I felt it come out. And as soon as it came out, I just remember leaning back in the chair and just sitting there stunned. But, you know, all the emotion and everything was gone. And it was just like, you know, I'm okay. Like, I felt the finality of this attachment or this connection, this cord that has been tethered with this thing was gone. And my grandpa just told my brother-in-law, open the back door. And he was holding something like in his hands, like physically holding something that we couldn't see he took it out the back door and I could hear him from inside yelling at it get out of here don't come back you know all of this stuff and he came back in and his face was just you know in shock and he just walked straight past me to the back bedroom where my grandmother was and I could hear him and her talking and she was going well what was it you know like he just said I don't know he said I've never felt anything that heavy he called it heavy because he could feel a physical weight 
but also with heavy, he meant he never felt anything with that kind of energy, I guess, or strength or whatever you want to call it. But that was the breaking of the attachment. Afterwards, I felt amazing. I could feel it around, you know, and trying all its little old tricks, but it didn't have a hold of me any longer. So I was able to see it for what it was and separate my thoughts and feelings and reality from what this thing was trying to pose on me. Like one thing that I want to really put out there for people who might be experiencing it or maybe are just curious about these types of things is we see TV shows and things like that where people undergo an exorcism or, you know, some kind of cleansing ritual and the attachments broken and everything is perfect from there, you know, but in reality, you know, after the show ends, <laughs> there's still a level of maintenance and upkeep that you can't ignore if you've experienced something like that because it'll come right back. I haven't heard from it in about five years or so. And just last night, it came around. There is no better way to know what you're capable of than through the fire. And when you're going through things that are horrifically bad at the time, just know that they are strengthening you. You know, you might not know for what, but you're going to come out of that with a whole new skill set and a whole new mindset. And no matter how bad things get, there's always a way out and never give up without a fight, no matter what, whether it's a battle with your own demons or your own mind, or whatever it may be, just keep going because there is a purpose for you. And there are people that you can reach out to, even if you feel like you can't and things will always get better. Thank you for listening to the season five premiere episode of Euphemed. Thank you to Caitlin for being our guest. Caitlin is a Euphemed listener who emailed me their story and you can have your story featured too. Reach out to me at jim at euphemed.com and you can find more from Caitlin at unboundunderground.com. Thank you as always to our sponsors and for everything Euphemed, including how you can subscribe to the show links to our Patreon and social media, visit euphemet.com. And for even more, check out Night Drift, our weekly radio broadcast discussing euphemet and hosting panels on topics at the intersection of society and the strange. Sundays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Original score for this episode was by John McEdward, and this has been Euphemet. I'm Jim Perry, and until next time, keep looking up.